Good morning again, and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. And so we're thankful that we can come together with our first service and our second service all together and, and worship. And we can sing the songs that we've sung this morning, and that they are truth. And we get to behold the Lamb. And so we are glad that you're here. And uh, we want to say a quick thank you to all those that helped with the auction this weekend. Our school, Mount Calvary Christian School, had the auction on Friday and Saturday. It was wild. It was crowded. It was loud. It was awesome. Um, sounds about right, right? Um, we raised a lot of money. I was talking to Jared, $201,000 through the weekend. And so that was our goal. And we are so thankful for that. So to all those who served, for all those who gave and were there, thank you guys. Thank you, everyone, for, for being a part of that this weekend. We will continue our walk through 1 Samuel this morning. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18, that's where we're going to spend our time. If you heard last week, or I'll tell you last week, we were in the iconic story, 1 Samuel 17, of David and Goliath. So this week, our story is, is not probably not as iconic as David and Goliath, but it is still, as I turned to 1 Samuel 18 on Monday, was looking at it, this is still one of the classic stories of the Bible. David and Jonathan. This is the iconic friendship. The one article called this the first biblical bromance. The Bible's, yeah, that's a little weird, but the, the, the Bible's most famous Friendship. Even in my ESV, in my ESV Bible, the subtitle before the text of chapter 18 says, David and Jonathan's friendship. And so you've heard the sermon on David and Jonathan. You've heard the story about the friendship of these two. Jonathan loved David. David loved Jonathan. Therefore, friendship is a gift. It is a gift from God. God created you to have friendships like David and Jonathan. As the sermon that you've probably heard before, as it goes, usually ends with something like, who is the Jonathan in your life? Who is the David in your life? Because this is how God designed life. Now, that's the sermon, and maybe you can pick up where I'm going. Like last week, as I came to the text 1 Samuel 18, my question is, is this the point? I mean, is this the emphasis, especially in, in light of how we talked about David and Goliath in chapter 17? Is there something more here? Now, I'm not trying to ruin your childhood. There's flannel boards. I'm not trying to, like, just to preach a different message because I want to preach something different. My question is, and our question should be, when we come to the text is, what is the heart? What is the emphasis? Is this a blueprint for friendship? Is it that we need a buddy like this? We need accountability like this? Or is there something more? Because when you read 1 Samuel 18, it doesn't talk a lot about their friendship. I mean, as I was reading it, not having any idea where I was going to take the sermon, well, let me say this first. I'm not downing friendship. We're, we're probably going to be speaking about friendship with David and Jonathan later. I'm just not sure that it's the emphasis here. 
1 Samuel 18, a lot of people love David. Israel loves David. Michal loves David. Everyone loves David in 1 Samuel 18 except for Saul, and I think that's part of the point. The word that's used for love in verse 1, Jonathan loved David. It's not brotherly love. It's not the friendship love, the word that you might expect. It's, it's the same word. It's used of Saul loving David in chapter 16 when he became his armor bearer, like a political counterpart, a piece of his, of his military. He loved David. It has a political connotation to it. It's not the word you would expect, nor is there any, any sense of a two-way relationship? It's not David loved Jonathan. The focus of the passage of the chapter is everyone loved David. I was reading about the ages. Okay, Most think that Jonathan was 10, 20, probably 30 years older than David. Now, that wasn't on the flannel board, was it? No, on the flannel board, their peers and their arms around each other. And so this morning, we want to come to the text and say, God, what, what are you teaching us? What are you teaching us? What's the heart? And so we're going to scratch out the ESV subtitle. It's okay to do that. They're not inspired. And we're going to say, God, what, what do you have for us today? And so I think really the focus is just practically, as you read the text, two different, two different men seeing the same person, David, responding in different ways. It's responses. You've got Jonathan's response in the first five verses, and you have Jonathan's response. And so what we're going to look at is how, how do they respond to the, to the giant killer, and what does it teach us? Where are we in the story? How do we fit in with this? And so this morning, I'll read the first 16 verses, and then I will talk through 17 through 30 as we go. So let me read, and then we'll pray. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So the Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, songs of joy with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with them, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. 
And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help me this morning as I speak and help us as we listen, as we seek to understand, to believe, and to obey your word today. God, we come into this room this morning and we come stressed and we come tired and distracted. Maybe we come in content. However we come in, Father, we pray that through your spirit and by your word that you will teach us that we'd leave this place passionately pursuing you, God. So help us today. Speak to us through your text. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we come right off of the heels in chapter 18 of Goliath being defeated. And so this mighty giant had been taunting and defying and threatening Israel. But remember last week, into our helplessness, God sent a boy from Bethlehem, that he came from obscurity, but there was greatness in this boy, that he came lowly. David did not look like you would have expected him to look. He was a servant, remember, a servant of cheese, as awesome as that is. The heart of a shepherd, mighty in strength, mighty in compassion, mighty in faith, like we said last week. And he stepped out. He was mocked by his brothers. He was mocked by his people. But he stepped out against the enemy with his sling and the stone, and he defeated the giant. And we get to chapter 18. This has literally just happened. The end of 17 talks about Abner grabbing David, bringing him before Saul. David drops the head of Goliath. And here we have Saul's response, verse 2. And Saul took him that day. That day, that would be that moment. And would not let him return to his father's house. I mean, this is the day that Goliath has been killed. David has just dropped the head. And you, you're, you start to think, what, What is Saul going to do? How is he going to respond? I mean, you would think that Saul would be celebrating, that he would be rejoicing, that he would be hugging David, praising God because Goliath was his his enemy. This was Saul's idea all along. This was Saul's idea to send David. He, Saul, gets the credit here. And so you just, you you anticipate, just without knowing all the backstory, you would anticipate Saul celebrating, but he is not celebrating here. Verse 2, he is seeking to control David. There is no hint of joy. There is all this idea of, I want to control. You will not leave. You will not go to your father's house. You will stay with me. This goes back to chapter 14, verse 52, where Saul, it says, I'll just read it. It won't be on the screen. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Saul is insecure. 
He doesn't want to play second fiddle. He wants to control the narrative, and he wants to be seen as the point person, the front person. So he's telling David, we're not celebrating. You are stuck with me. But we see in the, in the story, uh, this is a fire that Saul cannot control. They go home, they pull back into town, the championship parade, it has started. The ladies are out, they are singing and dancing and celebrating the famous song. You've heard it before, I've always played it in my head as a country song. They are singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And they are celebrating. And what does this this do for Saul? He is incensed. I mean, he is enraged by this. He can't stand the song. What is the root of his anger? Because on the surface level, there's nothing inherently wrong with this song. It's just two statements connected with and, two equal facts. Saul has struck down some, David has struck down more, but it is still a celebration. But Saul does not hear this as two connected facts with the word and, or disconnected facts, or just two facts. He hears it, and some translations do this. Saul has struck down his thousands, not and, but the word but. But David, his ten thousands, in other words, He is comparing himself to David. And that's what we see in the next verse, verse 8. Why is he angry? They have ascribed to David ten thousands and or even but to me they have ascribed thousands. He is comparing. So first he's controlling. He's trying to grab David and keep him behind him to control the story. Now we see he is beginning to compare. He is envious. That's the word I kept coming back to. Jealousy. He is envious of of the applaud, of, of the victory that David is receiving with all these people. He is envious. And this this is you start to kind of see envy, this idea of comparing yourself to someone else, and then wanting what they have. We start to see this play out in the life of, of Saul. And listen, it is, a, it is a miserable place where Saul goes with envy. I mean, he can't, it does a couple of things we see with Saul. He, he can't be appreciative of David, right? Because he is envious. He can't even appreciate the fact, I mean, David is on his team. He should be happy. This is his enemy. But because he is envious, he can't appreciate. That's the one side of envy. And the other side is, because of his envy, he can't be grateful for what he's accomplished. I mean, defeating a thousand Philistines, that's not small potatoes. I mean, that's something. That's something to be said of. I mean, that's an accomplishment. But this is what envy does. It is deeply selfish, deeply selfish, that you can't be appreciative of what someone else has accomplished, and at the same time, you can't be grateful for what you have or what you have been accomplished. And we start to just see how envy just obliterates in Saul all hint or sense of joy. And this is the true for, this is true for us. When we compare ourselves 
to someone else, and we start to envy. Envy just leaves us miserable. I was reading about a pastor who's going through chemotherapy, and he was talking about envy. And, and it was right around Christmas, and all the Christmas cards were coming in, and all these happy and healthy families. And he said exactly this. He said, I was angry about their happiness. I was bitter that I couldn't have that, that I'm on chemo and I'm struggling. And it just leaves you completely miserable. And so aren't we thankful that we don't have any technology that with one touch of a button that we can see thousands of people that we know and don't know and all that they have and all that we don't have? No, that's, that's rhetorical. That's not rhetorical. No, we do have that technology. Social media, is it, is, it fuels the flame of envy. Anything on television, anything on the internet, anything on social media, if you struggle, if you struggle with envy, this is fuel to the fire. Seeing other people's jobs and vacations and families, marriages and children. I mean, there is always something on social media to cause you to say, I wish I had that. And, and this is what we see here with Saul and what we're going to see is this is a dangerous road. He's controlling, and he's comparing, and he's envious. And then we start to just see this, this major spiral downwards. Verse 10 and 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. While David was playing the lyre as he did day by day, Saul had the spear in his hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. I mean, it is, a, it is a few small steps from being ungrateful and comparing yourself to others and being envious to going absolute crazy. I mean, this is the picture we have for Saul. What starts as what we would, it's harmless comparisons. I mean, he's envious. Quickly becomes, he is crazy. He is paranoid. He is mad. He is murderous. He is literally enslaved by his envy. I mean, he is fixated on solving this, reading this from him because he can't stand it. It's the truth of James 3.16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition are, all vile practices are there. Saying selfish ambition and jealousy fuel the fire for, for all kinds of deeper Sins, vile practices. And so we see now Saul start to spiral. Feeding this envy, he becomes just consumed with this idea of, I have to end, I have to end this. And so the rest of the chapter, we have this raving, crazy Saul just trying to get rid of David. It started with the spear. David evaded it twice. For the rest of the chapter, we're going to see three other opportunities that, that Saul takes to kill David, not as conspicuous as throwing a spear. Okay, we'll just walk through them briefly. Verse 13, he demotes David. He demotes David. In verse 5, he was set over, what's, in verse 5 it says, he was set over the men of war. He was, in other words, the commander of the commanders. Well, now in verse 13, what does he do? He's, he says, no, I just want you to be a commander. I just want you to go to the, I want you to go to war. I want you to go to the front lines. 
Now, we, we recognize that tactic in the life of David. David's going to be the one using that later in the story. But at this point, Saul is using it on David. I want you to go to war so that you will be killed so I don't have to envy anymore. But it backfires. The phrase that we see over and over again in the passage, the Lord was with David. God protected him. God guided him. And then twice more, so that was the first time we see Saul trying to get rid of David for two other times there in verse 17 through 30. We see Saul trying to get rid of David through marrying his daughters. First, in verse 17, with marrying Merib. But he says in verse 17, it comes with a condition. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. I mean, Saul is, is sinking lower and lower into his deviousness, right? I mean, he's, it's the Lord's battle. He's using spiritual language to convince David that he's to go to war while Saul, we know what he's thinking. Saul wants David dead. And then what happens? Once again, he's victorious. What does Saul do? He reneges. He goes back. He backtracks. And instead of following through with his promise to give him Merib, he gives, him, he gives her to somebody else in verse 19. And then in verse 20, he does it all again. Okay, so first with the Philistines, he put them as the commander, go to war. Second with his daughter. And now we see it again with Michal in verse 20. But there's one difference in verse 20. The difference is, here we're told, McCall loved David. And it was here in the passage that I really started to sense the, the depth that Saul has fallen down to. McCall loves David. And her dad is going to use that, use her, use her love against David to try to get him killed. I mean, how low is this? The, the text describes it as a snare. She was used as a snare. Saul used his own daughter as a trap so that he can deal with his insecurities about who he is and what God is doing. He sends his servants in verse 22, feeds them the lines on what to do. Tell him, if you go and you capture 100 Philistines, you don't have to pay the bride price that you couldn't afford. Just get me the Philistines, 100 of them. But the Lord was with David. Verse 27, he arose and he went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. I mean, who, who is going to stop God? What can thwart the ways and the plans of God? And I love the fact that it wasn't a hundred. David, he, he must have written down the wrong number. He must have just gone above and beyond, got confused. I mean, not a hundred. He brings 200 as if to say, my God will not be stopped. And so thankfully, 
that this is not the only response that we see to the mighty Goliath killer David in this passage. I mean, this is discouraging. Here we see Saul. I mean, how, how low from, from controlling to comparing to spiraling down to slavery. I mean, his sin has just completely consumed him. He is enslaved by it because of his response to who David is. He is threatened by David. He is bitter against David, and he is responding to that bitterness. But that's not the only portrait that's painted in this chapter. It's not the only response. In the first five verses, we see a different response, the response of Jonathan. I'll read it quickly. As soon as he finished speaking this all, verse 1, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan made a covenant, verse 3, with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So the Saul sent him over the men of war. This, this is a completely different response, obviously, right? Jonathan sees David, the Goliath killer, and his response is utterly different. The first way that this is, his response is described, it says, Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And that, that's kind of an interesting way of putting it. I mean, it, it's a unique way of putting it. It's not what you would expect. So I looked up the word for knit in the Hebrew. It means to bind, to tie together, to latch onto, to knit together. I'm not a knitter. I love knit socks, but I, I don't do the knitting. But the picture is you are, yeah, that's sorry. I like some socks, knit socks. He's binding together. When the word is used in the Hebrew, it's being used, it's used literally. So when, when Rahab tied the scarlet to the window, she's binding it to the window. The word in the Hebrew is this, this same word to knit. So almost every time this word is used, it's used physically, literally, to describe two things being tied together. Only twice in the Old Testament is this word used to describe one person's connection to another in a relationship. This is one example. The other example is with a father and a son. Really interesting. I mean, any, any guesses who the father and the son who are knit together would be? It would be Jacob and his son, Benjamin. In the story of Joseph in Genesis 44. And you know the story. When the brothers want to take Benjamin, what does the dad say? Like, he, he is my son. He says, I am knit together with my son. If you take him and he dies, I will die. He is my life. So I think it's interesting. It's not a word that's used to describe friendship. It's a, it's a word that's used to describe a strong, deep, committed, connected, loving relationship, like the father and a son. And, and as parents, if you're a parent, you can understand Jacob and Benjamin. Jacob saying, my son's life is more than my life. My, more than my life. I will sacrifice my life for my child. That's how valuable my son is. And this is the picture here. 
It's not friendship necessarily, but this deep committed relationship, this deep committed love that says, and, and this is what he says in the second half of verse one, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. He loves him more than himself, more than himself. This person is more valuable. David is more valuable than my life. His happiness and success is more important than my own happiness and my own success. The picture with knitting, Jonathan knitting himself to David is a picture of selfless, committed, connected love. And Jonathan makes a covenant with David where Saul, his word was good for nothing. Right? I mean, the contrast here, it is clear. Saul says one thing, but the text tells us what he's thinking. He sounds good. He sounds spiritual up front. This is the Lord's battle. Let's go defeat these Philistines. David, you're the mighty warrior. But inside, we're told he, he's thinking something else. Here, Jonathan, his word meant something. I am committed to making David more valued, more successful. I will completely disregard myself for David, and he is taking it to a covenant. But then look what he does. Look at verse four. Stay with me. We with you guys with me? All right, that's good. Verse four. Look at this. To me, this is where the message veers from go have a buddy and, and to something different. To me, this is the clue or the 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 heart of why I don't think that's the message. Verse four, what does he do? First, Jonathan strips himself of his rope. I mean, that, that is significant. Okay, we, we know how it works with kings. The son of the king will become the next king. He's the prince. We know that when the prince abdicates the throne for whatever reason, what do they do symbolically? They take their robe and they leave it on the throne. What is Jonathan doing? What is he doing? He is saying, David, you take my robe you take my right to the crown and I give it, I give it to you. David, you are greater, you are more worthy, and I bow before you as the next rightful king. That's what he's doing. He gives him his robe. He gives him his armor. This was his, this was his protection I mean, this was everything for him in battle to save him. And he's, he, he gives it to David as if to say, I trust you. I am vulnerable before you. You are my mighty king. You fight for me. And then look, he gives him his sword. I mean, you don't give your rival to the throne the sword. Like that, there's movies, all kinds of movies. You, Someone's taking your throne. You go after them to fight them. You don't give the rival the sword. And that, just as I was thinking about it, I mean, Jonathan has more right to hate and to go after David than Saul does. Right? I mean, it, it, maybe not more right. It makes sense. Jonathan is the one who's anticipating the throne. And here comes this this mighty warrior who's going to take it from him. You would expect 
Jonathan to respond the way Saul has responded. He is taking the throne from you. How are you not envious? How are you not angry? How are you not? I mean, Jonathan has won battles. He defeats the Philistines. He shows faith in God. How in the world is he not saying, I deserve this, you don't? It's because Jonathan sees so much more in David. He gives him his sword. He's saying, you are greater. Command me, lead me, fight for me. So how do, how do we explain no jealousy, no anger, not conniving to go get the throne? How, how do we explain it? It is more than just friendship. This is not a friendship love that motivates him. This, this is not a message about friendship. This is, this is lordship. This is bowing before the David who is greater than he is. And this is what I think he's doing. This is faith. He sees David anointed and empowered and sent by God. The promise is coming through David, not through Jonathan. And I think Jonathan, at least on some level, maybe not fully yet, he is starting to get it that this, 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 there is something happening through David that's not going to happen through me. God is working through David. And so he submits to it. He bows to it because he knows how much greater David is. He steps off of his throne. And so the question for us is this. How have we responded to Jesus, the greater David, the greater Goliath killer? How, how do we respond? Who are we in the chapter? Because the chapter presents itself this way. You're either going to submit and bow and surrender like Jonathan, stepping off the throne of your life like Jonathan, or you're going to fight. You're going to fight like Saul. And, and you're going to be angry. And you're going to claim things and want control of things and compare and be angry and just push for your own way. And, and so the question for you, it's for me, is who, who am I in the passage? This last week, how has my life reflected what I believe about Jesus? My anger and my control and my, my envy how does it reflect who I am? Because remember, the response is this. We have Jesus, that into our helplessness, God sent another boy from Bethlehem, that he came from obscurity, but there was greatness in him, that he was lowly. Jesus didn't look like you'd expect him to look. He was a servant, not of cheese, but a servant of carpentry. He comes as the good shepherd, he was ridiculed and mocked by his brothers, just like David was. But he stepped out against our enemy. This was last week's message. He stepped out against our enemy. This is what Jesus has done for the greater Goliath. The night that he was betrayed, what did Jesus say? The king of this world has been judged. He took it to the cross. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was shamed. And he was crucified. 
and he wasn't wearing armor, and he didn't look the part, and he was small, but in Jesus there was victory. That was last week, but it wasn't just that he defeated Satan at the cross. The message, the story goes on. He ascends from the grave, and he goes to the throne. Jesus is the king today, and so the only message or the only response that makes any sense for us today, knowing that Jesus is so much greater than David, not just in Goliath, but he sits on a more valuable, more significant throne. The only response for us is for you and for me to step, step off the throne of our lives. He is the king of kings, and we, we bow before him like Jonathan. You have everything. We knit ourselves to him. You take it all. You command me. You lead me. Which, by the way, all of this is the answer to comparison and envy. This is what happens when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you bow before Jesus. Yeah, you can still struggle. You will. We all still struggle with envy and control and comparing. But what the gospel does to your mind is when you fix your eyes on Jesus, that you have more than you could have ever imagined in Jesus, that you have more now and more, more coming in the future, all of a sudden, that moment you start to compare or to envy, the, the, the gospel floods your mind. It floods your mind, and it just reminds you, you deserve none of the spiritual blessings you have, yet God has given you everything in Jesus. And now we can start to Envy less, compare less, and be grateful and appreciate more. And so the question for us is this. Are you bowing before the Goliath killer? Does your life reflect that you have bowed before the Lord, that anger and envy and jealousy aren't dominating your life because you are bowed before Jesus? That's the encouragement. We're going to close and sing a song. All I, have in, all I have is Christ. And that's a song to pray. That's not a song to declare. Right? That, that, those are hard words to let come out of your mouth. And I usually pray, help me to believe this, God. All I have is Christ. Therefore, I surrender and I bow and I give you everything. I give you everything that I struggle with, everything that I have, all the gain, all the bad, all the struggle. I give it all to you because you are the king of kings. So we will pray, and then we'll pray this song as we sing. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that in 1 Samuel 18, we have a picture of who we have in your son, Jesus. And we celebrate and worship and, and are so deeply joyful because of all that we have in Jesus. That Goliath has been defeated, but more than just Goliath, the, the greater Goliath, death and evil and Satan being defeated, you sit on the throne. And so God, I pray that that would captivate our minds, that I pray that you would help us to see you the way Jonathan saw David. Help us to see you and Jesus the way Jonathan saw David, that we would leave this place in submission and surrender and joy and worship of all that you are in such a way 
that when we want to envy or we struggle, that it pales into comparison to your power and might and control that we bow before. Help us now as we sing this song, work in our hearts that we would think this way. Amen.